This is a pain information network. This is Q&A. Welcome back. Uh, I think everybody really enjoyed Dr. Rax, and we'll have part two coming up soon. So if you hadn't had a chance to listen to Dr. Rax, it's a great story. Uh, that was our previous episode, and I thought today I'd answer a couple of questions because they're good Q&A questions. They're the type of things I get in my practice, the type of things that sometimes uh, a lot of primary care doctors get, and these questions are, are often misunderstood. So let, let's start with I'm allergic to pain medicine. Well, I'm not sure you can say you're allergic to pain medicine. Certainly if you've had uh, anaphylactoid or anaphylactic type reactions where your airway actually starts closing and you ha- start having just horrendous problems, um, that's one thing. That's a type of thing that uh, when you get a beast today and you have an EpiPen around, that $700 EpiPen, <laughs> go figure, epinephrine should be pennies. Um, but when you have an allergic reaction to pain medicine, it's often misunderstood. For example, I hear this all the time. I take my pain medicine, my hydrocodone, my tramadol, whatever it is, and I start itching. But that's not a, a reaction to the medicine itself. It's a histamine release that's inherent to how you process that drug. Most opioids cause a histamine release, and it can be very minor, something similar to you itch a little. It's usually around your nose. Sometimes it's the peripheral uh, part of your extremities, like your forearm and that sort of thing. But that's not an allergy. An allergy is where we have a, a, a real constitutional change, not only in our vital signs, but also in our ability to move air, exchange oxygen, and in our ability uh, to uh, basically keep from collapsing because it can cause cardiovascular collapse. That's very different than itching a little. That histamine release is like when you walk out in a field in the springtime and you get hay fever and your eyes start itching and watering, your nose itches, the roof of your mouth itches, you start scratching your, your torso. That's a histamine release. So rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying hydrocodone doesn't work or tramadol doesn't work, you might want to talk to your doctor about taking a Benadryl or something like that. Um, you know, just talk it over with your doctor before you just abandon a medication. A lot of times I hear this, I'm allergic to morphine. Well, how are you allergic to morphine? When I was in the hospital, they gave me morphine and I got streaks up my arm. Well, once again, that's a histamine release. I tend to see a little more histamine release with different types of drugs and their delivery system, like IV is more intense sometimes. It makes sense. You're really getting that slug of drug in there. Whereas the PO is more of a slow onset, uh, less of a problematic issue, and uh, I'll often give my patients a Benadryl uh, or an Atarax hydroxyzine, and they they say, oh, okay. And it usually is self-limited. It tends to go away over a a few days. So uh, that's something important. Uh, Talk that over with your provider uh, and talk that over with your patients if you are. Uh, a provider of healthcare. Also, nausea, that's not necessarily an allergy. And nausea happens with opioids because it goes to the chemotactic area of the, of the primitive part of the brain in the medulla. And uh, these opioids can get in there. And some people are very sensitive to opioids. That doesn't mean it's an allergy. And I would hate to lose a clinically important drug to you. 
by just saying and declaring allergy. Because once a provider or physician hears allergy, it's a problem. We have to be very, very careful giving that drug and have a real good reason to give it. Because let's say, God forbid, something really does happen. Well, you said you were allergic. So you operated outside of standard of care, right? Well, not exactly. It wasn't described to me as a true allergy, but they had an allergy. You can see that paradox we live in. But just keep in mind that nausea accompanies some drugs more so than the other. I tend to see it more with codeine. I tend to see it more with uh, uh, morphine. I have seen it more so with fentanyl, particularly in a patch form. And that's just anecdotal. I'm just throwing that out there. I can't say that there's any particular statistic that's going to define who and what drug causes the nausea. But once again, it's probably uh, dose-specific and route-specific. IVIM, uh, intravenous or intramuscular, versus uh, oral and uh, even rectal and oral buckle or in the cheek is absorbed pretty fast. So um, keep these things in mind. Talk it over with your healthcare provider. A little bit of nausea is not necessarily an allergy. All right, I get a rash. Well, histamine release causes a rash. Talk it over with your healthcare provider. Try an antihistamine. Okay, so, all right, that's important. Allergies are important, and I want everybody to take it seriously, but I don't want people just to abandon a certain therapy or care profile because they think they're having an allergy. Let's define the allergy. Let's work through it. Okay. I'm going to have a series of epidurals, and my doctor tells me that I might need one every month or every two months after that uh, as a booster. Well... I don't agree with that, and I certainly adhere to the concept of medical necessity. If you have one epidural injection or one injection in your SI or facet or trigger point or whatever it is, and you get a lot better, your pain level drops about 50%, which is great. You're able to sit longer, move around better. You're able to ride in a car longer. You're a happier person. You're taking less medicine. That's enough. You don't need another injection. Get the injections when you need them. Give yourself some some latitude. And remember, we're often using steroids. Not always, but often using steroids. And steroids accumulate. I think people forget when they go to the orthopedist and they get an injection in their knee, they go to the primary care and they get a steroid injection because they they had some bronchial problem. They go to uh, their pain doctor and they get a slug of steroids in their back. It adds up, and one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. And when it starts adding up and you start getting around, um, I'm not going to give a number, but I'm just going to say a fairly high dose throughout the year, the question I get asked is, will this weaken my bones? Is this going to make me eat, gain weight? Will I get a hump on my back? My cheek's going to get chubby. I usually can say no, unless... You're getting steroids on top of steroids on top of steroids. I need to know everywhere you're getting steroids. That question often does not fall forward in the pain management arena or any part of the clinical scenario with uh, most specialists. So please, as a consumer, tell whomever is about ready to give you a steroid for whatever reason if you've had steroids from X, Y, and Z provider. They may want to take it a little more cautiously. It even comes down to the steroid dose packs. People don't think that they're very potent. They are very potent. 
I take five milligrams of baseline prednisone every day because I have rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, I need to know that. That's very important. It helps me with diagnostics. Let's make sure you get your bone density. Let's make sure you're on a calcium supplement. Let's make sure you get vitamin D, et cetera, et cetera. Talk that over with your health care provider. So, okay, series of epidurals, no. Medical necessity, yes. Series of any injections or multiple trigger points, no. Unless it's clinically indicated, unless you have true medical necessity where you can justify not only the procedure but the risk complications and options, that risk-ward benefit, the procedure isn't indicated. If you're doing great, take it. Just take it and just you know, kind of stand back and say, you know, I'm using 50% less medications. This is really great. Can we go to non-narcotic medication alternatives? I really feel this is awesome. Maybe I'll just go down to one hydrocodone a day and I'll take uh, some type of NSAID a couple times a day um, and really cut down on the potential risk of uh, dependence. These types of things are the global pictures you should be talking about with your pain management uh, specialist and any physician, really. What are your benchmarks at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months? We've talked about this. And if you aren't hitting those benchmarks, why not? It isn't getting another epidural every two months because, well, I need a maintenance. There is no such thing as a maintenance injection. There is no such thing as a maintenance procedure. Uh, unless it's specific to a disease state. Uh, osteoarthritis or spinal axial disease is, is a disease state, but it's not a progressive, problematic disease state that uh, requires medical necessity of injections just because they think it, therefore it is. All right, <clears throat> this is another question. I go into the room, I forget everything my doctor says. What can I do? Well... <laughs> Of course, we're going to talk fast, we move fast, and many of us see between 30 and 40 patients a day. Think about that. You know, we just don't have the time we want. We really want more time. I, I'm telling you, I want to sit down, uh, cross my legs, and I want to sit there with uh, the patient and talk for a while and talk about their family. I want to talk about everything. I want to get to know them. I want to know how their week went, their month went. You know, what's going on with the kids? What kind of lifestyle are they having? What's going on at home? Is everything all right at home? What are your life stressors? I want to know all that because it plays into the scenario of how I'm going to treat you. But what is it? Do we have that kind of time in reality? I don't know. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we have to. We have to slow down, stop. And we have to make sure we're doing the right things for the right reason. You know, the, the complaints we get about people waiting in the waiting room, you know, I am so sorry that sometimes I have a wait in the waiting room. But let me give you a primary care example. A patient walks in, they're pale, they're a little sweaty. They decide to get kind of worked into their doctor. They come into the exam room, and they notice that his blood pressure is up. They notice his heart rate is fast. Um, they say, you know, this is not you. We know you pretty well. He goes, yeah, but I've had this indigestion. What do you mean you've had indigestion? Oh, I think I've got, I guess I've got some indigestion. Can you, can you help me out here? Well, the first thing <laughs> Doc's going to do is get an EKG. All right, he sees some problems with the EKG. Guy's having an MI. That's going to slow down the whole uh, scenario that is happening in the back that's where patients are treated. 
not in the waiting room. <laughs> and it's going to pre- pretty much put complete focus on that individual. So things slow down, and that's how we get behind. Now, in the pain management arena, we're, we're talking about very difficult treatment scenarios with people. And sometimes they've had some hiccups, and we need a little more time, and we will slow down. If you think you need more time, I, I get told this. <laughs> I get told this. Can I talk to you more? Because you, you seem so hurried. I will slow down. And, yes, uh, we need that. And don't hesitate, as a consumer, asking us to slow down if you have concerns. Now, on your end, please help me out. Come kind of organized. Come with a list of questions. If you have concerns, don't try to remember them. You can't remember them in that room. It's an intimidating situation to go into a physician's office, particularly if you have a problem. Like, let me give you an example of a patient I took care of last last week. Has cancer, bladder cancer. Um, also has some other problems, COPD, a lot of spine pain, and probably just had a compression fracture where the bone on the spine kind of collapses on itself. We've talked about that in previous podcasts. Um, I need I need to hear what's going on because it's pretty easy for me to hear that you have your chronic back pain. It's pretty easy for me to hear that you have a little bit of abdominal distress from um, your ongoing treatment for uh, your bladder cancer, and you just feel crappy, you're not sleeping well because of your COPD and just life stressors. But I have to hear my back pain got worse suddenly. My back pain got worse when I, when I sneezed, and now it's, it's excruciating. I, I'm having trouble getting it. I need to hear the right history. So write some things down. It really helps me, lead me. If, if you lead me, we all win. It's not being disrespectful. It's absolutely a tool that you can use to communicate with me so I can communicate with you better. And that's, that's so helpful when people come in with not 10 questions, but some really pointed, important information. And not something I read on the Internet. And what about uh, something completely unrelated? Well... I'd love to talk to you about that, but let's make that maybe another visit another time. It's not related to what's bothering you the most right now. The chief complaint of any visit is what's bothering you the most right now. We focus there, we expand out, and then we can cover um, your other problems. We can figure out how to treat you correctly. So let's, let's look at this a little deeper. Can, can you record the conversation? Can you record us? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. People have cell phones, and they've recorded me. Um, we have specific uh, requirements uh, within the context of HIPAA, uh, Health Information Privacy Portability Act. That's a whole nother podcast, and we'll do that, and I'm going to do a webinar on that too because it's so important. But um, – yeah, I mean, it, it can't. The conversation can be recorded under certain specific scenarios and guidelines. It has to be a two-way street so that everybody knows. Don't unilaterally record somebody. That's an interference with the patient-physician relationship that's built on trust. If the physician doesn't know you're, that he's getting recorded, that's a problem. And um, I just, I just want you to know because I've heard of other physicians. Um, that have just gone ballistic when they found out that that violation of trust um, has been impaired by being covertly recorded. 
So you know, keep it open. Keep an open discussion. And uh, if you if you want to record something, fine. But I think you need to really be aware of the ups and downs. Okay, so that's another thing. Who can I bring back? <clears throat> they told me no one can come back with me. Well, that's not necessarily true. I'm going to tell you why sometimes I don't want somebody in that room. When I'm getting to know a patient or when I'm trying to figure a patient out, if somebody else is in the room, I might ask the patient a question, the patient will look at the other person, and the other person will answer the question. I'm asking the patient the question. Is that a problem? might be. I just saw some bruises on the forearm. And uh, that person is sitting there, and the other person is answering the questions. Or I can't really understand where all the medicine is going, but the other person is answering the questions and wondering what I'm going to prescribe. I think you know, get where I'm going with this. I'm not saying that it happens a lot, but it can happen, and it happens more often than you might think. I don't have a problem with another person or family member that the patient agrees to come back, sit down, after I've had a chance to establish a good rapport with the patient, ask some very important questions. Is everything all right at home? Any any risk to harm self or others at home? Is your home environment safe for you? And I, I'll give you another scenario. Elderly uh, woman, just delightful, came back, and her husband was a little indignant that we just wanted to talk to her first and examine her. That's not unreasonable. Uh, it's not unreasonable. But he he was not happy. After we got her back and talked to her, she was very open about the fact she just didn't think she could be cooking and cleaning at the level expected. She's not uh, the young lady she once was and as expected by the husband. And what what can we do? Can we send somebody and that sort of thing? That's really important. She wouldn't have said that in front of the husband. But I, I think you get the point of where I'm headed with this. Then we can bring the husband back and we can say, hey, what do you think? Is there something we can do? Can we send in home health to help out so you two can enjoy more quality time together? Maybe you can get out and, and walk in the afternoon more often or you know, enjoy the grand, uh, grandchildren, something like that. So if we don't let a spouse back or a significant other or whomever it might be, it's not that we don't have a reason for it. We do have a reason. Now, once you get to know the patient and provider and you understand the family and everything, it's usually not a problem. You know, come on back. And then, uh, you know, if somebody wants to take notes, that's fine. You know, it's not a bad idea when you bring in your questions, you also bring in a pen to add to those questions the answers. All right. Um, A physician contacted me and... Uh, Thank you very much. Great idea. Um, He wanted to know a few more things um, about articles and the like that we might be able to offer. offer. And I think this is a good time to start introducing the article of the week. Now, what what good is an article of the week if uh, it's not accessible on PubMed in America? PubMed is this uh, national uh, database that we can start looking up articles and figure out where to get them. Well, most of these articles you have to pay for, and some aren't cheap. And so you read a little paragraph about them, and then you're like, well, I didn't tell me anything. I didn't learn anything. But I'm going to tell you another way to go. And this is how we're going to start. For both patients and providers alike, finding articles of relevance and value. 
and um, they're free. They're all free. It's an incredible uh, opportunity for not only patients to kind of read a little. I know it's it's focused towards uh, physicians and healthcare providers, but you can you can pick stuff up. No no kidding. You start thinking like us, you know, scary as it is. Um, you can kind of see why we do what we do for what we do. So let, let's do this. Okay, go to ASIPP, P is in Paul, dot org. All right, go to the homepage. All right, to the left, click journal. All right, that takes you to pain physician. This is, this is a resource. It's an incredible resource. I'm one of the editors, and it's so uh, popular that it's now uh, spinning off another journal. Go to Pain Physician website. You'll see it there. All right, click on that. All right. All right, let's start off with the, the, one of the real landmark articles. You'll see there opioid guidelines. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only thing in here. Uh, you can go up there under search, and there are literally thousands of articles on virtually everything. And the current uh, issue highlights are there. Usually uh, one or uh, two articles will kind of uh, pique your interest. But go to op- opioid guidelines. That's the one I want to start with. All right. Now, these guidelines are extensive, um, part one and part two defined as evidence assessment and guidance. So this is a, a work that is, you can see a lot of the authors, I want to, uh, and led by Dr. Manchikani, true leader, uh, and a broad brushstroke of both academic and non-academic people in the know uh, that have come together and they put together these articles uh, we do first do relevance. We identify the article through a relevant, uh, uh, progressive way uh, uh, defined as methodology, and then we get rid of the bad ones and we keep the good ones, and then we uh, do these things called systematic reviews where we put the uh, relevant data together and we try to keep high-quality data that we have set criteria on and uh, out with the bad and with the good and then we put together uh, the uh, guidelines for responsible opioid prescribing uh, and use. And these are two good articles to start with. And next week I'll, I'll build on this. But for patients and providers alike, these are, are fantastic references. Yeah, they're long. Yeah, they're daunting when you look at them at first. But if you take them in small chunks and you and you look and you see – What's important, like oxycodone, I'm going to learn a, bit, a little bit more about that. What? I didn't know who wrote the most uh, pain medicine. Primary care? I didn't know that. I thought it was pain doctors, no? I mean, it, it, and it, it talks about relevance, uh, relevant risk, and it helps you kind of understand uh, what we're thinking when we talk about guidelines for responsible opioid prescribing, which is so important these days. So we're going to start with that article, and... Um, For you folks out there that uh, are treating in the field, uh, look down at the next article uh, from 2012, Opioid Epidemic in the United States. I think that's one of the best articles I've read on opioid epidemic in the United States. So you'll scroll right under part one and part two of the guidelines, and you'll see that uh, uh, opioid epidemic in the United States. And actually, this needs to be... um, pretty much uh, 
updated because it's gotten worse out there. And then right below that, you'll see a systematic uh, review of randomized trials of the effectiveness of opioids for cancer pain. That's a good one for a lot of people that um, have either cancer or don't understand how we put together systematic reviews that ultimately lead to guidelines. So we'll take small chunks out of this, and uh, I'll expand on these two uh, guidelines in the next podcast next week. But that's a good place to start. So go to ASIP.org. Go to the journal, and then you can search anything, but start with uh, these responsible opioid prescribing guidelines. It's uh, uh, really probably the best reference I've ever seen, and I'm a little biased, of course, because I'm in there. But uh, the work that these people did uh, is is remarkable and led by Dr. Manchikani, a leader in pain medicine from Paducah, Kentucky. And once again, it isn't necessarily the big city. It's... It's where people want to live, and the best providers are sometimes in, in places you wouldn't expect. Lubbock, Texas, that would be Gabor Racks. A number of the best uh, pain doctors I know live in uh, rural um, areas, uh, like uh, John and Cindy. Uh, go back to that podcast uh, in Arkansas. So, Okay, I'm going to wrap this up, and uh, remember, paininformation.com if you want to communicate with me and i and i love hearing from you because that's how i i build on this stuff that you want to hear and i will have uh patients on i want to have a couple patients on i'll be careful about that because you know the hipaa and all that but i do think they have a they have a statement to make about their pain and if you have a particular patient you want me to um talk to um let me know but i thought i'd start with the uh, fibromyalgia because those people come in and they, they've been Sometimes just, uh, I don't know, whipped around by the medical uh, machine where they just they feel helpless and hopeless. They don't think people believe them, but I do. So uh, I also would like you to um, leave a review at iTunes. It really helps me uh, get visible out there so more people can find me. So go to iTunes, iTunes Store, and then go to Pain. And you'll see pain information there. And you'll click on that icon and you'll see leave a review. Once again, this is an informational uh, channel. It is not going to take the place of clear and distinct medical advice from an individual who's qualified right in front of you, who has examined you and talked to you, understands your history. So seek that person out. And if you go to the ASIP uh, website, you'll see there's a directory there. Maybe you can find somebody close to you. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.